Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasomaham Jyotir Gamaya Mritiormam Amrita Gamaya Avir Avir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Tenamaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves. And evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is the God of Vedanta. And we're going to be talking about the personal God, the creator, the preserver, and the destroyer of this world, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omnibenevolent Lord of the universe, the God who is worshipped in all religions of the world. Sanskrit word for God is Ishwara. And Ishwara is defined in the Upanishads as that being from which all beings have come and by which all beings are sustained and into which all things go when they return. Ishwara Sarvabhutanam Hriddesher Junatishtati Brahmayan Sarvabhutani Yantra Ruddhani Mayaya. See, in the Bhagavad Gita refers to this concept of the Ishwara, the personal god of Vedanta, saying that the whole universe revolves like a wheel turned by God who is at the center, at the hub of the wheel. The best way for us to understand the concept of God, that is the personal God, in Vedanta, is to begin with ourselves. Using ourselves, we begin by using ourselves as a model. There's an old principle, an ancient principle of occult science. Yadeveha tadamutra tadamutra tadanviha. Whatever is here is there. Whatever is there is here. As above, so below. Whatever is in the vyashti, that means the individual, similarly, it is in the collective. Whatever is in the macrocosm, 
The macrocosm mirrors the microcosm. And so if we want to know about the macrocosm, about the universe, and about all the sum total of everything, then we need to study ourselves. Each one of us is an individual person. God also is a person. It's just he's a cosmic person. So we have a microcosm, person. We can say that's true about ourselves. I am an individual. So also it's reasonable to see, is he as beloved, so below, that there must be a, it's reasonable for us to assume that there is a cosmic person. Person here means, we're talking here, we'll talk a little bit more about what is a person. But in Vedanta, of course, person means a self conscious being. And so there is a cosmic, we're going to postulate, the, the argument, we're going to take you through step, step by step this argument, I hope, that there is a cosmic person, and that each individual, we look at ourselves, is a microcosm of body, mind, and soul, gross, subtle, and causal, so too, we can think of the cosmic person as having a body, a mind, and a soul, a gross, a subtle, and a causal dimension. Let's begin here just with the body. We can see that we have an individual body. Our bodies could be described from the point of view of physics, from the point of view of chemistry, or from the point of view of biology. It used to be in ancient times, they used to think of animals or just kind of like machines. But now we know, certainly we think of ourselves as we're, we're more like an organism. That is, we're a living organism. That's our physical nature. And no one body, exists in isolation in this world. We know that in order to understand anything in this world, we have to make reference to something else in order to explain that and explain that. If you take a flower and you look at the flower and you try to explain what is the, the nature of this flower, how it grows, where it came from, how it lives, we have to refer to the soil and the climate and the water. And pretty soon we see that in order to explain any one particular thing, eventually, we find that everything exists in a community of function. Everything's connected. Everything is linked up in a great web of life. There's no such thing as an individual, well, no man as an island, and that we have to think of them as part of a larger whole. Similarly, it is with the body. So our body, we can think of just as we have a body, which we call our physical organism, so we can think of that cosmic body, the macrocosm, as also having different, uh, we could think of the physiosphere, the, the, the biosphere, all that, the sum total of what we call nature, nature with a capital N. That's what we're talking about now, the cosmic. So we can think of nature as what is nature like? Well. We have different theories about some, some people say that nature is like a machine. 
But we maintain here in our thesis that nature is more aptly described as an organism, as a living organism. We could call it uh, what's called today uh, a superorganism. It's best described that as the cosmos, the physical, that is the physiosphere and the biosphere, is best described as a system that works together and that functions in a way that's similar to the way the human organism functions. And so the thesis here is, is that just as we have an individual body, so there is a cosmic body. Our individual bodies are part of that cosmic body, which is called in Sanskrit, the virat. Now, just as there is an individual and cosmic body, so we know as we just do introspection, we know that we also are body, mind, and soul. We know that we're a mind being. That is, we live in a mansion of thought. That mansion has, a, has an unconscious, a conscious, and a superconscious. And uh, our conscious minds are filled with sensations, with uh, emotions, feelings, with beliefs, desires, images. We have an unconscious, a subconscious mind, a great storehouse of memory. And we have a kind of largely unknown superconscious. And as it is, yadeveha tadamutra, as it is here, so is also it is in the cosmos, there is a great cosmic mind. The cosmic mind is the unity, the sum total, the collective of all minds. Sanskrit words are vyashti and samashti. I don't know why I'm telling you that. It doesn't make any difference. English is better. The individual, what we call the individual and the collective. So there is a collective, a universal macrocosmic mind. And the macrocosmic mind is the sum total of all the individual minds. We could call it, it has a collective consciousness that contains all that's aware of the now. Remember, God is like us. God is in time, in space. And God is aware of the now. God is aware of all thoughts, the sum total of all beliefs and desires of all minds in the world. That's the contents of the consciousness of this divine mind, this cosmic universal mind. There's also a collective unconscious. And there's a collective superconscious, which is aware of all of the subtle and causal planes of the cosmos. The intelligent self, now we're doing introspection. We see in addition in our mind, we have an intelligence. The intelligence in the individual mind, called the buddhi, this intelligence you can think of, it's like the inner light. It's like the point of light within us. This intelligence condenses to form self-consciousness, the I-consciousness within us. So it's the intelligence self that says, I am, that is aware of our I, our ego self, corresponding to the individual I, corresponding to the individual intelligence, 
So too there is by our analogy, we're trying to work out our analogy here of the, the individual and the collective, by analogy, there is a great cosmic intelligence called in Sanskrit the Mahat. You'll read all these words if you read there in Swami Vivekananda. I'm referring here to the Sankhya cosmology and Sankhya psychology. In Sankhya cosmology, there is a cosmic intelligence. It's called the Mahat. Mahat means the great universal intelligence. And from that universal intelligence, in the beginning, with the evolution of, from that intelligence, the, in the causal state, then arises that universal intelligence from that condenses a universal I consciousness. When they talk here about in Sankhya, they're talking about the evolution and the involution of the world. This is part of the, in, remember, we, we know a lot about evolution. We don't know much about involution. This is part of the involution cycle. So there's a cosmic intelligence that condenses to form a, a kind of a cosmic I consciousness. This is the I am of God. You remember how in the, in the Christian Bible, Moses goes up on Mount Ararat, and there he meets God. Well, he doesn't see, see it. Well, he sees the burning bush, and he hears the voice burn. The voice asks him, who are you? He says, well, I am Moses. And Moses said, well, who are you? And the voice says, I am that I am. What does that mean? That mean? Well, that means I am the I am of all the people. Everybody who says I am, I am the I am of all the people. I'm the sum total of all the I ams. That's the cosmic intelligence, the Mahat and Swami Vivekananda was very fond of quoting a maxim. Nobody knows who first said this. It goes way back to the Greeks. God is an infinite circle whose circumference is nowhere and whose center is everywhere. Man is an infinite circle whose circumference is nowhere but whose center is in a particular place. That's an old definition of God and man. What's the difference between the individual and the collective? We see then that man is a body that is ourself. We look at ourselves. We see that we have a body, a mind, and a soul. Now, when you get into yoga psychology, of course, they go further than that. They say, no, you don't have a body, you have a body, you have, a, you have an energy body, you have, a, you have a mind body, you have an intelligence body, you have a bliss body, you have a, you have a witness. Uh, I mean, there are six or seven different levels. Forget about that. We're just saying, make it simple, we're we look at ourselves, we see we have a body, mind, and soul. That is gross, subtle, and causal. That's one of the principles of the, of the Vedanta philosophy. First clearly defined and expressed in the ancient Sankhya philosophy. Everything that we see is gross, subtle, and causal. See, we know very well about the gross physical world. The subtle world of the mind, we can say, yes, of our own introspective mind. Subjective, subtle. We know very little about the objective, subtle world. 
In any case, you're gross, subtle, and causal, body, mind, and soul. Similarly, the uh, God is conceived as having a macrocosmic body, mind, and soul, and the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm, and there is an individual man, that's you and I, and then there is a cosmic man. Let's look here at that idea of the cosmic person. By man and person, I'm translating here the Sanskrit word purusha. This is a very ancient idea that appears maybe first in the Rig Veda, which is the oldest scripture, religious scripture in the world, where it speaks there, there are hymns which describe the Adi Purusha, the cosmic man, the first man, the universal person. Of course, they're not referring to a male or female or man, woman, or child or anything like that. They're, they're referring to the cosmic person. He's called the Sahasrashirsha Purushaha. That is the Purusha, which has thousands and thousands of heads, thousands of arms, thousands of legs. Sahasrashirsha Purushaha Sahasraksha Sahasrapa Sabhumi Vishwato Vritva Atyatishta Dashangulam Purusha Evedam Saravaham. Like that it goes, the, the Purusha Sukta. Ancient thousands of years ago, describing this cosmic person, this universal man who existed in the beginning. In the beginning, there was this being, this cosmic being, Agni Murdha, it says in Upanishads now, Agni Murdha, Chakshushi, Chandasuryodisha, Shrotre, Vag, Vivartascha, Vedaha. It compares, it's, it's analogy there, it's say. This universal being, just imagine, the sun and the moon are his eyes. The, the wind that blows is like his breath. His voice is the revealed Vedas. All of the arms and the legs and the bodies of all beings in the universe he contains within himself. And so he has thousands of arms, thousands of legs. And that this is the universal man, the cosmic Purusha of the Vedanta philosophy. And I don't know, like, yeah, Mother Nature. Sounds like Mother Nature, right? This cosmic person is the God, the personal God. He's a person. He's a self-conscious being. He's the personal God of Vedanta, and he's the embodiment of the ideal of unity in diversity. And this is the theme of Indian philosophy, the one in the many. Unity in diversity. There's one being who is described by many names. In the beginning, there was one. The one is the many. And in the Bhagavad Gita, you will read, Sri Krishna is in the 11th chapter. You will read about how 
Sri Krishna, that is, who is God, he's like an incarnation of God, the disciple, Arjuna, is asking him about what is God like? What is, the, what is God really like? Arjuna believes that Krishna is an incarnation of God, is like a human embodiment of God. He has two-arm form. But he's wondering, what are you really like? I know you're lo- you look like a man, but... And so on that occasion, in the 11th chapter, Sri Krishna reveals to him the Vishwa Rupa. That means the universal form. He appears to Arjuna as the cosmic man, as the cosmic universal man, which is as, as I described to you. Then, the, then in the 11th chapter, it describes in, in, in many verses what, what Arjuna is seeing. And after this revelation and this vision, Arjuna is completely overwhelmed. And He's, he's frightened, he's baffled, he's confused, he can't wrap his brain around it. And so he begs Sri Krishna, please, that's enough, I've seen enough, please <laughs> appear to me again in your two-armed form, which Sri Krishna does, and they're back again on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. And Arjuna could not grasp the universal form of God. Now, we are in the same position insofar as we cannot conceptualize or visualize or even imagine, really, what this universal person is like. And this is natural. This is as the way it must be because this universal person is not an individual person. He is not, the, the universal person is not an actual person. Maybe we could call him a meta-person. We could call him a universal person. Let's look here at this word universal. A universal God, we're going to refer here back, to the Platonic theory of knowledge, articulated in Greek philosophy by the Greek philosopher Plato. This is true of whatever you think of in the world. Whatever word you were to think of in your mind, and whatever thing you think of, let's think of the opposite of God, G-O-D. You think of the opposite of the dog. How about a dog? When you think of a dog, well, you know what a dog is. You can point to a dog, and how do you know it's a dog? Well, you have in your mind, the word recalls in your mind a concept, and that concept, that word, you could look it up in the dictionary, and that concept will be described in the dictionary, and it pretty much describes what you saw. That is, the, the concept refers to an idea, and enables you to describe what the dog looks like. But the idea in your mind, and here's the point, Plato's point, the idea in your mind, that is the the reference, is not any particular dog. The idea refers to a universal 
abstract metaphysical entity that is a blueprint or is the set of all the dogs. And therefore, when you see that thing walking along, barking, wagging his tail, it reminds you of the word. The word refers to the idea. The idea conjures up the universal set. Uh, and it, you, now you identify, you can take that thing that's walking along, you put him in a pigeonhole called dog, now you know the dog. That's what to know a dog means. That's true of anything in the world. That's how you know anything. How you know a person. So it comes back again to the reference to the universal within us. But it's interesting for us to note here, the set of all dogs, that is the universal dog, the, the abstract metaphysical set, that the blueprint of all the dogs in the universe, that set is not a dog. It's the set of all dogs, but it itself is not a dog. And similarly it is with God. In the Upanishads, God is referred to as the cosmic man, the universal man. And the cosmic man, that is God, the Adi Purusha, is not a particular person. He's not a particular man or an actual man or a woman or a child. And yet he is a person because he is a self-conscious being. So that's why we call him, okay, he's not a person. Maybe we could call him a meta-person. But you also are a meta-person. Remember we said, you understand God, you understand yourself, according to yoga psychology, according to the teachings of Vedanta, you also are not a person in the sense that etymologically, the word person comes from the Latin the persona. Persona is like a megaphonic mask that the actor wears on a stage. Your personality, you have a personality. You have many sub-personalities with which we are fully identified. And therefore, we take our personality, our personhood to be real. And yet, with a little introspection, and the students of Indian philosophy, you know that you are not your persona. You're not all the roles you play in the melodrama of life. You are not your body or your, your mind or your thoughts or your feelings. But rather that you are a metaphysical, self-conscious being. You are meta. You are above the person that you think yourself to be. Well, so the thesis here is that God, what is God? Conception of God in Indian philosophy, or as I'm presenting it to you this morning, is um, that of a universal, macrocosmic, self-conscious being. Now, a question, we can ask a question, if God is in fact a universal cosmic person, that is a unity, a unified whole, why is it in all different religions, when we read the accounts of the visions of the saints and, and, the, and the mystics, they always describe God as having a particular name and form? Nobody talks about the Vishwa Rupa Darshana of chapter 11 of the Bhagavad Gita. Everybody talks about a vision of God, 
God is described as having a particular name and form. And this is because, this is the technical Sanskrit terminology, the nama rupa, that means the name and the description of the entity that we are describing. So God has a particular name and form, and this is natural. Why is it that they just always describe it as being a particular individual person when they actually see God? That's because the saints and the mystics are individual men and women. And so when they see something that is as an individual, we have a point of view. And as an individual, we always have a cognitive perspective. We always approach something from our own point of view. That's natural. Every individual sees reality from his own point of view. Now, this is not relativism. It just means is that you're a human being. There's a thing. There's a fact of the matter. There's a way that things really are. But different people are going to approach it in different ways. Just as so you come to the temple, you come up to the temple, you're going to see the front of the temple. All right, did you see the temple? Yes. But you didn't see the back or the side. Someone else coming from that would have approached it from a different point of view. But it's the same. The thing in itself is the same. Similarly, it is when we approach something that that's cognitive relativism. That's not truth relativism. That's called cognitive relativism. That means that a photographer chooses how he will frame the picture. The critic will decide how he will interpret the text. And interpretations of a text, whatever it be, may be very different. But the art holon, that is the text itself, will always be the same. And so this explains to us why in Indian philosophy that God is described under many different names and forms. Truth is one, ekam sat, vipra, bahuda, varanti. That's the statement of the Rig Veda in ancient time. Truth is one. Sages call it by many different names. Why? Because true, the universal God, the cosmic man, is approached from different avenues, is seen from different cognitive perspectives, and is described under different names and forms, just as a diamond. When you look at a diamond, necessarily you will see one facet, one little face of that diamond. Nevertheless, you will insist that, yes, I saw the diamond. Nobody says, oh, I just saw, did you see the diamond? No, I didn't see. I just saw a facet of the diamond. You don't say that. Because when we see, we don't see the facet. We see the diamond. When we see, we always see under an aspect. But we don't see the aspect. We see the thing in itself. We see the object. And so uh, that's why God is described having many different names and having many different forms. And you may be, at first study of Indian philosophy, you may think, well, which one is it? Which God is it? And the answer is, is that it's the, it's the same person 
being described from many different points of view. This helps us to clarify a little bit our idea of God in Vedanta. The conception of God in Vedanta, this is not, if you want to give it a name, this is not polytheism. Polytheism maintains that each name and form is a, an individual, actual, separate deity. So this conception of God that we're speaking of this morning is not polytheism. It's not monotheism. Monotheism, of course, maintains the universal cosmic man, the Adi Purusha, is a particular person. That is, he has one natural name and one real name and form that distinguishes him as a particular person. The idea that if there are 50 people in this room, there's another person, God, that's 51. So he's in addition to all of us, there's another guy, this is not Vedanta, this is not monotheism. Of course, monotheism is also a form of dualism, which maintains that God is separate from the universe. That's dualism. Now, of course, in Vedanta philosophy, as you know, it gets uh, maybe a little confusing that we teach three doctrines, dualism, qualified non-dualism, and non-dualism. There's a whole evolution of the conception of God. So I've skipped over the first stage, which is dualism, monotheism, to the second stage, which is not monotheism. What then would you call it? Well, it's not pantheism. Pantheism identifies God with the universe. Pantheism is just materialism. It's just another word. God is the universe. And of course, pantheism denies that is, the universe is like a, a, a super organism, but the uh, pantheists will admit that, okay, there is a, that everything functions as a, a unified whole, but will always definitely deny that that unified organism is a person. There's no personal God in pantheism. Vedanta is not pantheism. We could say, is it theism? Well, not really. That's why none of these words work. <laughs> what you're... Belief, well, it's not, not deism, it's not monotheism, it's not polytheism, it's not pantheism. We won't go through all the other isms. It doesn't fit any one of them. Maybe we could call it monism, because monism means one. The thesis here is that there is one being and uh, one great universal person, the whole, that includes all the parts. There's one in the many. So we could call it a form of monism, it's a kind of monism, it's a kind of holism, because they're parts, they're individuals, they're parts of the larger whole. In Sanskrit, it is called, I'll give you the technical name for this doctrine, which I've described for you this morning, it's called Vishishta Dvaita Vedanta. This is the second stage in the conception of God in Vedanta. It's not dualism. It's called qualified non-dualism. We're going to stop here at qualified non-dualism because if we go to the next stage, dethroned, all the gods get dethroned. And on that throne is put the self of man. So we're not going to go there. So when we talk about the personal God, 
students of the Advaita Vedanta fully accept this concept of the personal God as long as we think of ourselves as being a real person, the illogical entailment is we have to admit that there is a cosmic person. As long as you see yourself as a part, you have to admit there is a whole, that they're both there, that one is logically entailed by the other. So this is called, if you want to give it a technical name, it's called Vishishta Dvaita Vedanta, that is qualified non-dualism. So this is our conclusion. Our conclusion this morning is we've made several strong claims about the personal God. And you have to process this in your own understanding. Do you see, do you believe it? Do you, does it make sense? Do you, do you think it's true? How would you know it's true? We're not getting into all that. We're not getting into validity claims. I'm just describing to you what is the idea. This great cosmic being, this great cosmic person. We made several claims about this cosmic person, about this God, call him God. It doesn't really help for us to call him, well, maybe it does, call him Ishwara, Ishwara, which refers particularly to that cosmic person. We've made several claims. Number one, that God exists. Number two, that God is a person, a self-conscious being. God is not a superorganism that behaves like a person. The belief is that God is a person. What is a person? A person is a self-conscious being. And the God is not an actual person. He's not a man, a woman, or a child. But he's a cosmic. God is a cosmic, universal person. And that that God can be described under many different aspects. So what you have here is a kind of a theory of everything. And uh, all that remains is the practice, theory and practice. That is all that would remain, if you accept the theory, would be to enter into a relationship with this God to uh, realize God, to do yoga sadhana in order to be able to realize God, and uh, finally to see God in everything. Om Dyo Shantihi Antariksham Shantihi Prithivihi Shantihi Apa Shantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantirehi Om Shantihi 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 Om Peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.